Welcome to the ICEJ Weekly Webinar. I'm David Parsons, one of the Vice Presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, coming to you from our headquarters in Jerusalem on Thursday. Of course, it's time for the weekly webinar. We always explore different topics, biblical teachings, current affairs. Right now, we have uh, the hot topic of not only the day, the week, the month, but the whole season, the judicial reforms in Israel and the very heated dispute that it's caused, uh, not only here in, in Israel, but uh, a lot of the world is watching it and being uh, affected and, and waking in themselves. And here to help us understand what's going on, give us his insights, is uh, Yonah Jeremy Bob. He's a senior reporter for the Jerusalem Post. For many years, he handled legal affairs, judiciary affairs, and he's also doing military reporting. I uh, understand, uh, Jeremy, good to have you. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yonder Jeremy Bob is our guest, and he uh, he's also going to go to a meeting today with Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, meeting with Israeli officials, and uh, that's pretty um, a, a good gig you got here. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's never... It's never boring. No, no. I mean, the military especially, it's always uh, security, security, security here. Um, look, we've had, we have this very tense standoff between the, the left and the right uh, in general, would say, over these judicial reforms that the Netanyahu government uh, is trying to push through the Knesset uh, and... I, I said from the start, once the government was sworn in, and uh, and then they started uh, saying we're going to pass these judicial reforms, like they've been, you know, threatening for a while. And then Arya Deary was going to the Supreme Court was going to rule on a petition whether he could serve uh, as a minister. Of course, he was an important coalition partner. I could sense at the start this thing would get heated. And that we'd actually be pining away for those quiet days of, of three years of political deadlock when you didn't have a government and things were going fine and not that had its own tensions. But those seem like the good old days right now. And and this debate is actually about to ruin Israel's seventy fifth anniversary celebrations if it continues into April into uh, May. Uh, the the Jew the Hebrew calendar the the is uh, secular calendar when we mark this event, but it's really a game of greatmanship right now between the left and the right. Uh, the government says we want to pass these reforms, this whole package of reforms, before the Passover break when the Knesset takes a break at, at Pesach, and the left uh, is raising all sorts of alarms. We're not going to fly Netanyahu to Italy, and this is it's the left. This is center, even people on the right. We're not going to come in for our reserve duty service, um, and now the right is charging uh, sedition, treason. You're being unpatriotic, and we thinks everyone protests too much, <laughs> and that there is a central... Um, there has been judicial overreach by the the liberal courts. Uh, the right is trying to what they're trying to do now is an overreach in itself to try and compensate. 
and there's a compromise, a reform package in the center that I, I know uh, President Isaac Herzog is really pushing this that's just there for the taking if everyone will have cooler heads, find the right formula of checks and balances that everyone can live with going forward. But uh, just want to get your take on how, uh, where are we right now and how did we get here? How did this thing get so intense? Okay. Um, like you said, there's a lot to unpack. So I'm going to start with a couple of things and then I'll ask you to ask me more questions about the other yeah. things because I, I don't want to give a, you know, 30 minutes straight lecture. So let me just start with a couple of highlights that I think very few people understand outside of Israel and sometimes people forget in Israel. The current battle right now um, is not actually between what we traditionally in Israel call the left and the right. Traditionally, the left and the right in Israel is about land for peace versus security and not land for peace. So the right used to be, we don't want to withdraw from the settlements in the West Bay, or we only want to withdraw from a very small amount of settlements in the West Bay. And we're keeping all of Jerusalem um, in negotiations with the Palestinians to resolve the conflict. And the left was, we're willing to give away almost all of the West Bank and maybe even give away the east part of Jerusalem in order to make peace with Palestine. That was what left and right used to mean. And I think eventually it will still be what left and right will mean because those are existential issues that aren't going away. The legal stuff, the debate over the judicial overhaul, reform, whatever you want to call it, only started sort of in its beginnings, let's say, uh, four or five years ago. When I say it only started four or five years ago, there are people who have been upset about the Israeli judiciary for 30 years, but they had no power. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, now, for the last two months, and for about 13 years, um, not longer, basically, you know, he was prime minister from 96 to 99, prime minister from 2009 to mid-2021. Then there was another government for a year and a half, and now he's back. Um, and he was always against, uh, quote unquote, judicial reform. He was always one of the biggest protectors of the judiciary. There were always people in his coalition, former justice minister, um, you know, Ayala Chaked, um, and others, um, Betsala Svotrich, he was less powerful than now. He's one of the big, uh, powerful people's finance minister, um, who wanted judicial changes for the, the political class have more power of appointing judges, limiting what the judges could intervene on. Um, but until recently, they were relatively isolated. Um, there was no chance that what they wanted to happen would happen. And then what happened was uh, there was an indictment issued against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And there's been a trial now going against him for public corruption. It can be for, it can be against. I'm just saying there is a trial. It's been going on um, at sort of uh, somewhat pace since May 2020 and full pace since April 2021. And that is the fight today. So the fight today is, I wouldn't even call it left or right, it's sort of yes, Bibi Netanyahu, no, Bibi Netanyahu. So you, you have in the opposition today um, two very clearly either right-wing or center parties, um, the, the, the Russian-Israeli immigrant party of Avigdor Lieberman is a right-wing party. They are pro-settlement. Um, and the truth is they are probably pro-conservative uh, judges in general. 
um, the center party of Benny Gans and his number two, Gidon Sar. And I would say Gidon Sar may be the most important person in all of this. He had his own party until a couple months ago. He's number two to Benny Gans, his uh, center party. Um, but basically, Gidon Sar is a lifelong Likud right winger. He left the Likud only because of the public corruption charges against Netanyahu. He definitely wants conservative judges. He's probably in favor of, of about half of the judicial reforms, but he's very upset about the other ones. And he's upset that Netanyahu is the one who's doing it because he thinks that the reason Netanyahu is doing it is not that Netanyahu really believed in a conservative judicial philosophy, which Gidon Sar does, but because Netanyahu wants to do something to appoint judges who will make sure that he doesn't get convicted or if he has to appeal to the Israeli Supreme Court in a few years, will overturn the conviction. That's what this is really about. So I just uh, want to start off at, at the front of, you know, when we say left versus right, it's really yes, BB, no, BB. And the reason that all of this is important is I think it will lead into what I still predict will happen in the end of, the, of a compromise. Um, I don't know if the Israeli judiciary itself will be fully endorsing a compromise, but if the Benny Gans Gidon Sar party endorses a compromise, um, the whole opposition will eventually, even if it continues, will sort of fall apart. Um, it'll lose gas. Um, I think a lot of the people internationally who are worried about what might happen with this in the United States and in Europe, if they see that Benny Gans Gidon Sar and then the other person that's important, at least for Israel, former IDF chief Gadi Eisenkot is number three in that party. If all of them endorse a compromise, I think it will calm a lot, not everyone, but a lot of people down. It won't be seen as, as controversial, won't be seen as corrupt. It'll be seen as sort of a principled moving the balance of powers a little bit more between, uh, you know, conservative and activists, a little bit more, more than a little bit more, more to the conservative uh, side. Um, I can go on now and start talking about sort of the elements, but is there anything you want to follow up and ask about that I just said first? Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you mentioned Ayala Shaked, who was the minister of justice in the Bennett Lapid government, uh, right. Lex government that, that fell last year and got replaced in late December by the new government. But she was pushing, I understand she was pushing some of these same reforms then and uh, but it didn't have much success. But wh what is it that the this government has proposed? And and it's it's the justice minister who's really uh, pushing it hard, even where he says if BB does put the brakes on it and start uh, compromising, he's going to resign, which puts Netanyahu's coalition in danger. But uh, what what are the main things they're proposing, and what's the time frame? Is it really really urgent to get it done by by Passover, which is three and a half weeks away. Okay, first of all, there's zero urgency. Um, there's nothing really happening right now. The one really urgent matter for the government would have been, could they have done this before Aryeh Derry, who's the leader of the Shas party, probably the second most important figure in the government today. Um, the Shas party is the ultra-Orthodox Sephardic party. There's two ultra-Orthodox parties in the government, one with people who made, uh, you know, moved to Israel um, 
with their families originally coming from sort of European or Russian or, or uh, you know, Lithuanian, Polish backgrounds. Um, that's the Ashkenaz. And the, the Sephardi party of Ariyadari are uh, Jews who at some point their family came from other Middle Eastern countries in North Africa. Um, and so basically he was fired from the government because he was convicted twice of public corruption. And the second time was pretty recent. And he said uh, in court, um, I won't run for the Knesset again. I won't try to be a minister again. Um, now, he said it in court, but it wasn't part technically of his plea agreement. Um, and so because of that, um, there was a whole debate as to, you know, could they really hold him to it? The Israeli Supreme Court said yes, and Netanyahu fired him. But there might be new legislation that could sort of change the law so that the Israeli Supreme Court can't intervene and he would go back into office. Um, but that's already happened. He's already been fired. So whether he goes back into office in a month or in four months, doesn't really matter. The urgency from the government is they know, they knew that there was going to be opposition and the faster they moved, they were hoping they could sort of blitzkrieg through the opposition, uh, to, to get, cause this is, this is a radical, uh, change um, of the, the balance of powers, the most radical since, again, the 1990s, when a more uh, powerful version of judicial review, the Israeli Supreme Court started exercising that. Now, by the way, people say that it was created in the 1990s. That's not true. There was Israeli judicial review already in some decisions in the 1960s, but it is true that in the 1990s, they became more aggressive under Justice Aaron Barak was the sort of big uh, pusher for that. Um, so I don't, I don't think there's a particular urgency other than on a strategic level. In, in terms of the elements uh, themselves and Ayelet Shaked, so what Ayelet Shaked wanted was for the Knesset to be able to override a Supreme Court override. All right, so the Knesset passes a law that says um, illegal African migrants coming across the border from Egypt uh, meaning they're coming from like Sudan or Eritrea and they make their way to Egypt and they walk across um, some part of the Egyptian border into Israel. This happened about 10 or 15 years ago, about 60,000 came into um, Israel. Um, in the United States, 60,000 would be like, what's the big deal? In Israel with only 9 million people, 60,000 was a really big deal. Most of them went to the same neighborhood. It sort of changed the character of Southern Tel Aviv and some other places. Um, and so the government passed a series of laws to try to get them to leave, uh, prevent more from coming. And the Israeli Supreme Court struck it down a number of times. And as Ayala Chiket said, this is, you know, this is terrible. We need to control uh, illegal immigration. Um, and uh, we need to let the Knesset be able to override the Supreme Court on these issues. And Netanyahu stopped her from doing that. So that, that, that was what was going on uh, back then. By the way, in the meantime, either enough laws were passed or the government was, you know, unfriendly enough to the migrants that it, it 60,000 was the maximum. They also built a wall. Uh, Israel was able to do that because it's a much smaller border than, uh, you know, Texas and mm -hmm. New Mexico. And um, so it stopped at 60,000, dropped to 30,000. The issue, I wouldn't say it's gone away, but it's not a hot issue anymore. And Netanyahu stopped her. Um, now, the, so the, the, that's the, the biggest issue is whether the Israeli Knesset can override the Supreme Court um, and with what number of MKs of parliament uh, members. Now, 61 would be 61 out of 120. 
that would be a bare majority. Now, you know, some people in Israel say, well, that's it's a big deal to get 61 because um, the most powerful laws in Israel um, can only be passed with 61 as opposed to, you know, let's say not everybody shows up and you have a majority, you know, not all 120 people show up. You have a majority of 41 to 37. A normal law could be passed 41 to 37. Yes. The sort of important law, basic law, could only be passed with 61. But you can't have a coalition government with that 61. So in theory, basically any coalition government would then be able to overrule any uh, Supreme Court ruling, um, you know, in, in the sort of darkest nightmares and mirrors that uh, uh, people opposing it are throwing out. They could say um, the Knesset could rule you know, that um, you have some of these ultra-Orthodox parties that women um, showing up at certain religious sites have to dress with certain mm-hmm. modesty standards that the ultra-Orthodox uh, decide. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's the kind of thing that people um, are afraid of, which I, th- I think even conservatives in America wouldn't respond well to uh, someone telling them uh, how, to, how to dress. Um, so then, so basically the opposition says, look, you need to have at least some opposition votes to be able to override the Supreme Court to make sure that there wouldn't be something arbitrary like that. Let's make it 65. Let's make it 70. And then you can debate those issues. And by the way, one of the compromise proposals that's out right now is 65. Now, the Israeli judiciary would want a minimum of 70. They wouldn't like 65. But I could totally see Guido and Sar. And again, going with 65. That's the kind of thing that, yeah. uh, that it could go. It, it would be in, in comparison, say, when uh, in the U.S. Congress passes a law, the president vetoes it, and the Senate has to override it by two-thirds majority. You need a supermajority to really override what the president, uh, how he views on your bill. But this is talking about the between the Supreme Court and, and the legislature. Very interesting. So it's the it's trying to pull back to the legend to the parliament, the Knesset, some of the powers that the judiciary has sort of usurped, uh, liberal judiciary over the past couple of decades, and then the appointment of of judges as as well, how they're appointed, because right now the this government says it's imbalanced that the the uh, legal profession itself, the judges and the uh, Israeli Bar Association have the majority on that committee that appoints judges. Right. So let, let me just, um, I'm going to deal with the judicial appointment. That's, I'd say, the second most important issue in my mind. Um, and I just wanted to start off with, um, I think your analogy is, is pretty good in terms of you know overriding uh, the president, but here it's a little bit different because we're talking about the judiciary. We don't have a constitution in Israel. Yeah. Um, and the, the legislature and the executive are sort of one branch versus the judiciary. Right. So we're called a, a parliamentary democracy as opposed to presidential democracy. It's a little bit more European. There's a du- direct connection to some extent, and I would say usually to a heavy extent, between who runs the uh, legislature and who runs the executive. They're, 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 it's basically impossible. What you have right now in the United States where um, there's split control, Republican control in the House, uh, Democrats in the Senate and the presidency, that's impossible in Israel. There, there needs to be the same party running both the, the Knesset um, and the prime minister's office. Um, and um, 
So basically, because we don't have a constitution, this is the argument of the activist is the Supreme Court didn't really want to be as activist, but it had to be because there's no constitution. So whereas in the United States, um, Congress couldn't, you know, sort of, quote unquote, go rogue and pass something that 60 or 70 percent of the population wouldn't like. Um, you could have a populist, uh, populist Knesset that people like the prime minister in general, but they might not agree on, again, let's say the modesty issue, um, as opposed to the African migrant issue, by the way, 80 percent of the public was in favor of the, uh, you know, keeping the border sort of safe, so to speak, and preventing more African migrants from coming in. And uh, so that, that, that was an issue where the Supreme Court was very out of line with Israeli public opinion. The modesty issue, I think, is a, is a question where, again, because you have these ultra-Orthodox parties that don't represent most of the public, so that's uh, something that people were worried about. Um, so, again, if there was a constitution in Israel, um, then I think also uh, there would be more support um, for taking away more powers of the judiciary because the constitution could be the brakes. Um, so that's part of what's confusing is I, I, th I think a lot of people do think the judiciary has intervened too far and too often and too aggressively. Um, but on the other hand, they don't want the executive and the legislature to have no breaks. So again, it gets very complicated appointment. Okay, so what we have now is there's nine members that appoint Supreme Court judges, three from the judiciary. So they're going to sort of pick people who are generally more you know activists uh, themselves. Um, basically three from uh, the government, um, one from the opposition who's usually going to vote with whatever the judiciary uh, wants, since the government from most recently has been more conservative than the judiciary. Um, and then these two Israeli Bar Association members. Now, most of the time, the Bar Association members also vote with, with the judiciary. And what that's meant is the judiciary has it more control of the appointments. Um, but Gidon Sar, again, who's in the opposition today, years ago passed a law that made it impossible for the judiciary to push through even with a majority because they needed seven votes. And so they still needed the government to, you know, to be able to weigh in. The government could still veto. So there has been, always been sort of some horse trading. You get one judge, I get another judge. We talk, we're talking about Ayelet Shaked. She got maybe, there's uh, at least two very conservative judges on the court a third one who was sort of in the middle, and then there was one activist, so she actually changed the picture of the Supreme Court. Gideon Saar, also, who was justice minister for the last year and a half, um, got some more conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I would actually say that today, because of Shaked and Saar, that the Supreme Court has changed in the last eight years from, and I, these aren't exact numbers, it's not an exact science, but let's say if, uh, you know, it used to be, you know, 70, 80% activists, now there's probably only a one or two uh, ma judge majority for the activists. There's 50, 50 members of the Supreme Court, and right. and it's kind of shifting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, it used to be you know ten or eleven to four or five, and now it's you, it might even be eight to seven. It's still majority activists, but it might even be eight to seven. Um, so what um, what they're saying, uh, the government is. Uh, the Supreme Court has too much power, too much veto, and that's why it's been activist for so long. Um, and so they were proposing a clear majority um, for government uh, officials to be able to, to 
appoint Supreme Court judges. The latest compromise is basically um, some variation of four people from the government, four people from the opposition, and sort of some sort of observation role for uh, the head of the Supreme Court. And maybe the head of the Supreme Court could veto one or two people, and the justice minister could veto one or two people. And this would sort of make permanent the sort of horse trading to make sure that each side would get, you know, an activist, a conservative. Now, part of the trick to this is, if it would be done the way things are right now, some of the opposition figures would probably be from, again, Gidon Saar's party, who are right-wingers, or Vidor Lieberman's party, who are right-wingers. And the government knows this, so they would actually, they wouldn't get judges who would help acquit Benjamin Netanyahu, but they would get judges who would be more likely to tell the judiciary, stay out of settlement issues, stay out of immigrant policy, uh, those kinds of things. So it's a clever compromise from the government's perspective, which is why they're more excited about it. And the opposition is a little bit less excited about it. Um, but I do think, again, I, 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 there could still be tweaks and changes, but I think the compromise that's been rolled out um, by a former justice minister who's not a right winger named Daniel Friedman um, and President Isaac Herzog is working on a compromise. Something along these lines, I do think, will probably end up being where things will turn out. Okay. Look, when we look at these, uh, these this pact reforms, which I think it is, you know, some are calling it an overhaul. It is a substantial uh, overreach back the other way. But is this worth, uh, you've been covering it over the uh, past month or two, uh, is this really why should i israeli air force pilots be so worried about this uh, you've got 37 out of 40 in one of these elite air force pilot units that says we're not going to come do our reserve duty which traditionally you do it it's patriotic you you know you have to leave whatever you're doing you signed up for this when you became a pilot and the but the refusing uh, you, you've had even members of special elite intelligence units saying we're not going to come in for our Milouim, our reserve duty. I mean, uh, are they reading the fine printed worried or what's the bit? Why are they protesting? And what sort of impact would these uh, judicial reforms have on the military and where the whole world is watching? And uh, one of the reasons Israel doesn't get draw, called up for war crimes all the time by UN, whatever, is because they have this independent judiciary. How much is this in play? This is a huge issue. In, in fact, the reason that I think that Netanyahu is going to compromise, and I think, I think he's going to get a bunch of what he wants. I do think that things will move in a more conservative direction direction in a significant way, no matter what the compromise is. Um, but um, the reason that he's going to get part of what he wants is, you know, again, he's got the power. He's got the votes. He's got 64 out of 120 votes. He doesn't need to compromise technically. But the reason he's going to is the economic side. We'll talk about that later. And the military side that, mm -hmm. like you said, 37 out of 40 uh, elite Air Force combat pilots um, IDF Intelligence Unit 8200 officials, Maglan Special Forces officials, every single former Air Force chief also signed, they're, they're, they're not serving anywhere, they're older, but they signed a letter in support of a lot of these people. Um, and they're all threatening basically, you know, 
not to show up for training and if the law actually goes through um, to actually quit. And while they signed up for reserve duty, this isn't, you know, some people have been saying, oh, they could get put in jail. They can't get put in jail. Reserve duty is volunteer. Um, they did their mandatory service 20 years ago. They did their three years. They've been serving as volunteers for the last, you know, 20 years after that. They can quit anytime they want. Um, and that would be a disaster for Israeli national security. Now, why, what do all these people care about activists, conservative, and usually military people, I'm, I'm not going to say they don't follow them, but it's not their key issue, is not, it's not necessarily the judicial reform overhaul itself. It's what could happen afterwards and who's in the government now. And the most important person there is Itamar Ben-Gvir. Our Itamar Ben-Gvir is, they call him now national security minister, but basically he's the minister with control over the police. And most importantly, the border police, because the border police handle a lot of interactions and security with the Palestinians. And until now, for Israel's history, the Israeli sort of jag, you know, sort of the lawyer, the uh, military lawyers have set what the rules of engagement are. When can you shoot somebody versus when do you have to use non-lethal force? When do you have to, you know, fire a warning in the air? When could you shoot somebody in the knee as opposed to shoot to kill? Um, and those lawyers follow international law. And Israel gets criticized by people who hate it. And it does. Israel follows international law very scrupulously. I was, before I was a journalist, I was in the Israeli international law unit in the, in the IDF. Um, the lawyers are really, really serious, very committed to international law, um, have some very creative you know, ways to warn people that other countries like the United States sometimes have even copied um, to try to warn people to leave areas that they're about to attack. Um, and they're worried about this guy, Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir has never served in the IDF, has a history of, um, in some cases, in some cases, either blatantly encouraging violence or by implication encouraging violence. Um, he had a picture in his house for decades of somebody named Baruch Goldstein, um, who was, you don't use the term lightly, but he was a Jewish terrorist who mm -hmm. shot dozens of Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of decades ago, um, in, in Hebron. Um, and so this, you know, this person was a little bit of like, somehow like a hero for him. And he had a whole explanation about he doesn't support violence, but anyway, this is Itamar Ben-Gavir's history. Um, and they're worried that that guy could be telling them when they can open fire. And in fact, that guy and his party right now are trying to pass a law in the Knesset that would say that, um, Israeli military troops basically could would have like immunity for shooting at Palestinians. They wouldn't phrase it that way. They'd say it is sort of a national security circumstances. But the way it works right now is it's very rare that Israeli military troops get put in jail for shooting Palestinians because they usually follow the rules. They usually are only shooting if their life is in danger. And then self-defense in any country in the world allows, you know, shooting. There's been, you know, three cases, five cases where some troops went over the line. And they, you know, went to jail or, you know, were prosecuted and there was a trial and, you know, and, and, and so basically that's what they're worried about. These national security officials are worried about, they don't want to serve in an army where they think they could be given orders, um, that they wouldn't be able to follow. Now, as long as there's a Supreme court that would be able to tell Itamar ben -Gvir, your new rules of engagement are illegal. You need to follow the rules of engagement set by the Israeli military lawyers. They're fine. But if they think that because there's no constitution, 
that Itamar Ben-Gavir by himself could unilaterally give an order to give, you know, immunity to somebody to just shoot people because he was upset or because, you know, so something that would be less than his, the life being in danger, then they wouldn't be willing to serve in the army. I think that's the biggest issue for the national security figure. Yeah. 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 I think there's a lot of people who want to drag Israel to the International Criminal Court or arrest uh, Ariel Sharon or Zippy Livni. I remember there was a time when Belgium wanted to arrest some of these people under universal jurisdiction because it, you get uh, called into the International Criminal Court in The Hague uh, for war crimes because there's no judicial system in your country that's independent and, and is able to handle whether there were crimes committed here and you could get convicted in your own country, wh whether it was Rwanda or in uh, the Serbia and, and uh, Kosovo and, and, uh, and Herzegovina, that old area, the, Serb the Balkan War. Uh, these guys got drug in because there was no national courts there to try them that were independent uh, and not controlled by them. And Israel, I guess it's, it's a shield that the judiciary here is so independent, is so liberal activists in its outlook that people like Dur uh, Alan Dershowitz and Erwin Kotler from Canada, Dershowitz, a big American jurist, uh, they they say it's like the crown of Israel's democracy is this this judiciary and don't tamper with it. Is it that critical, especially you're saying with Ben Gavir, this guy who's known that he had Kahanis leanings, uh, forced transfers of the Arabs and all. That's a dangerous combination that you, you think um, Israel, you know, there's probes right now. Uh, there's a permanent probe by the Human Rights Commission. There's a, um, a, a possible investigation by the International Criminal Court on some of these very issues. Would this make it more likely that Israel would get dropped to the Hague or to the UN on war crimes. It would make it more likely. It wouldn't make it a certainty because again, it's it's not necessarily the reforms themselves. It's that once they would pass, if the Knesset could pass any law, if Itamar Ben Gvir could give a unilateral order and you know, and then the court couldn't stop it, and the Israeli military lawyers couldn't stop it, that would be the point where there would be a problem. So Something else would need to happen on top of the reforms of the overhaul, but the opposition says once the overhaul happens, it's too late to be able to stop Itamar Ben-Gvir, so that this is sort of like their alibi, this is like their point of no return. So it wouldn't happen immediately, but it would make it absolutely more likely, um, you know, because even any ruling that would be issued, you know, by courts, people could say, well, maybe the judges are being feeling pressure from the government that they rule a certain way, their rulings won't be upheld. So it would definitely make it more likely a problem. Like you said, um, you know, people have heard of Israel's Iron Dome missile defense. So they call the Supreme Court sort of a legal Iron Dome against the International Criminal Court. There's this principle, fancy sounding principle called complementarity, uh, which basically you, you explained, you know, the way we, normal people would say is Israel has its own courts and its own you know, prosecution and it investigates its own soldiers. It has set, sent uh, at least, you know, a few soldiers in recent years to jail um, who went beyond the rules of engagement. Some people 
um, on the government side are upset about this and say that the military lawyers are too, uh, you know, uh, loyal to international law or, you know, sort of not um, understanding enough the dangers of these 18 and 19 year olds um, who are up against Palestinian terrorists in the field and how complicated it is. But that absolutely protects Israel from these these threats. Um, I think the biggest one, like you said, is the International Criminal Court, the ICC uh, criminal probe, um, which opened in uh, March 2021. It was sort of being preliminary looked at all the way since 2015. Um, but the good news is that once a, a new uh, ICC prosecutor, Kareem Khan, took over, it basically nothing's happened with it. And the reason that nothing's happened with it is because Israel has this legal iron dome and the United States and a lot of the European countries who pay most of the ICC's budget, by the way, um, said, you know, this is not a place the ICC should be getting. The ICC, like you said, where do you get involved? Where there is no judiciary, where there is no accountability, where there's genocide, you know, crimes against humanity in Rwanda, you know, with, you know, Slobodan Milosevic, you know, in, you know, Serbia and Bosnia, those kinds of places where people are just killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, um, no difference between, you know, civilian and uh, combatant, not, you know, Israel, when it, you know, has wars with Gaza and it's going to attack a building, it drops flyers for people to leave the neighborhood. It gets people's phone numbers and calls them to leave. And then it even does this tactic where it shoots a rocket that has no explosive uh, to bang on the roof. If you didn't leave after the flyer and the phone call, you hit a loud noise in the roof. Okay, I'm going to get the hell out of here. Um, and, you know, so that's like one of these cutting edge tactics. Israel is very hard to warn people and anybody, again, who has really clearly broken the rules um, has been tried. So that protects Israel. And yes, it is very possible that if the, re the reform went through, that that could undermine Israel's protection in the eyes of the international community. And I think these pilots, they probably are going to feel a little more vulnerable because, that you know, they don't even you can't even take pictures of them. You have to blur pictures because they have such heavy explosives and making decisions that, you know, if they kill a child on the ground that they didn't see, or they're afraid of getting drugged to the criminal court. Uh, and and uh, I think, uh, you know, if that's really what they're worried about here, then it's a little more understandable. I want to uh, uh, move to uh, a recent article you did about some of the figures, even on the right or even close to Netanyahu, who have come out and at least told him, slow down this process. I mean, you had uh, Tamir Pardo, former chief of Mossad. This is the guy who helped Bibi rob the pocket of the Ayatollahs in Iran of all their nuclear archives. Uh, he, he told Herzog, President Herzog, don't sign any of these judicial bills into law. Uh, and then you have national security chiefs like Yaakov Amidror, and Yossi Cohen, both very close to Netanyahu, have been in every meeting with every important official over recent years with him. They told him, slow these reforms. And I I kind of feel this this thing of, you know, BB trying to get out of the legal problems. It's at a point where people that close to him, uh, the question is, from an historic standpoint, did Netanyahu make a mistake? in not following the tradition of resigning once he got indicted for these crimes. Because I think that's what 
a lot of these guys who are part of the established intelligence, uh, geosecurity, uh, uh, decision-making uh, stra strategy and all, they're saying, you know, this this is crossing a line for them. Um, so I don't want to retire yet, so I'm not going to express my personal opinion about whether Netanyahu should have resigned. I will say that... Um, the Jerusalem Post editorial page, which is traditionally center-right. Uh, again, if you're defining left and right about views on the settlement, traditionally... <laughs> you got to look at a lot of the comments. That a lot of your readers would disagree, but go ahead. Okay, so the Jerusalem Post editorial page um, generally supports uh, settlements. Uh, yes. It supports a, supports a peace process, generally says Israeli settlers wouldn't, you know, even in a final peace agreement, shouldn't have to withdraw, even if the Palestinian Authority is given uh, parts of the Westwood Bank where, where people uh, don't leave, um, absolutely called on Netanyahu to resign. Um, and what you're referring to is that upset a lot of people um, because a lot of our politics today has become you're either for a particular official or against a particular official, policy be damned. Uh, and so you're, you're right. There are a lot of people today... Uh, I, I think the Jerusalem Post is still center right on foreign policy issues, but you, you're, you're right that the, the the editor got a lot of flack for taking a stand against Netanyahu uh, that he should resign once he was uh, indicted. Um, so, uh, look, there's no question that the fact that Netanyahu didn't resign um, was part of this crisis. I bet if you could take Netanyahu's side and you could say, well, he never should have been indicted in the first place. You could we could we could talk for a whole hour ab about that. Um, I want to come back to what you said about the people who are close to him. The closest one is Yossi Cohen, um, right? Yossi Cohen, uh, like you know, like you were referring to the the mission where they stole, uh, borrowed, however you want to put it, um, Iran's uh, secret uh, nuclear secrets um, in 2018, and pulled off a whole bunch of other operations. Um, uh, attributed to foreign sources that the Mossad blew up uh, multiple Iranian nuclear facilities during his time period. It was also a big part of the Abraham Accords um, for Netanyahu being sent all over the place to talk to people secretly. Super close to Netanyahu, so close to Netanyahu that about five or six years ago when Netanyahu was asked who should be the next leader of the Likud, he infuriated all the members of the Likud by not picking any of them. The two people he named were... Uh, then Ambassador Ron Dermer and Yossi Cohen, who was head of the Mossad. So very, very close to Netanyahu and his views. And Yossi Cohen was part of this letter, which included almost all of Netanyahu's former national security advisors. There was only one who didn't sign on. Um, and uh, who said, you know, Netanyahu, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but cut a compromise for the good of the country. Um, and I, I do think Netanyahu is going to do The truth is, I think that's probably been his plan from the beginning. But Netanyahu, I think he plays very, you know, brinksmanship poker. And, you know, he wants to get the best, farthest deal he can possibly get. And so, you know, I don't think he's going to blink into the end. You mentioned before Justice Minister Yari of Levin. Let me be very clear about this. Yari of Levin is only powerful because of Netanyahu. He only got high on the list because Netanyahu let people know that he wanted people to support Levin because Levin was loyal to him. If Netanyahu makes the call that a compromise is going to happen, there's nothing that Yariv Levin can do to prevent it. Resign, not resign. He might resign. He, you know, sort of one of the signs 
that Netanyahu was serious about getting a judicial overhaul this time was that he appointed Levin in the first place. Um, but this is Netanyahu's call at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I think these national security advisors, the fact that they took this stance uh, was very serious. And I do think, again, that Netanyahu will listen to them at the end. But in the Middle East, the end is really the end. You know, it's anybody who's ever haggled in the at a Middle Eastern marketplace, you know, until you're like, you can't just threaten that you're going to walk out of the shop for a lower price. You have to walk out of the shop, maybe be on, you know, the sort of the point of leaving the door. And then the shop maker will be like, all right, I'll give you, you know, a better deal. So I think, you know, that's what we're going to see at the end of the day. Um, and part of it is because even these very close people to him are saying, cut a deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, President Herzog, who is really playing a, a mediator role in trying to reach a compromise, they say there's progress in it. We don't even know who's really, we've got some idea who's in there doing some negotiating, but uh, uh, he's taken a lot of heat from the left that he's not been more critical, I think, because he probably has an open channel, discrete channel to Netanyahu trying to work out a, a face-saving compromise for everyone. And uh, we're really praying for that. I encourage all our listeners to really be praying that a spirit of compromise, not a compromise isn't always good, but in this case, I think it is. But I do think from a historic perspective, Netanyahu does have a case that, uh, you know, being charged with crimes for wanting to get better press, I, I, I do press for the embassy, and that, sh- that should never be pr- co- uh, criminalized, you know. But uh, the tradition was that you would resign, and whether it was the three and a half years of, of uh, political deadlock, indecisive elections, or now this judicial reform, it does look like his decision um, not to resign and face the charges and then make a political comeback that uh, even those who are close to him now are saying, you're you're on some new territory that we're not so comfortable with. I hope he gets exonerated. I, I, you know, I, I think the man is a, a, a generational Western democratic state, and I have great respect for him, but I think there's a lot of Israelis as you say, even on the right, and even those who are close to him, who's saying he's he's stepping on some ground now, trying to get these reforms in for his own personal uh, to stay in power and, and get exonerated and all that. Maybe it's uh, you know this is really a, a, a big part of what's going on, where people are are raising an alarm that you you know it's it escalated so quickly here. Yona, that uh, I'm just shocked by it, but you can see it coming. I hope it gets resolved. I hope we have a great Passover. I hope we have a great 75th uh, anniversary celebration here in Israel. But we want to thank you for your time. These are some insights that you're not getting anywhere else, especially on the interplay between the judiciary, the reforms, and the, the vulnerability of Israel's security forces. Uh, through through the decisions that have already made. Thank you for your time and your expertise. I just want to say two things. First of all, amen to everything you just said. I, I hope there's a compromise. The exact details can be worked out. And I just want to thank you know you and your you know your followers. The, you know the American Christian uh, community is a huge uh, help and support 
um, for Israel. So uh, amen, and thank you to all of you. Yes. All right. We've been speaking with Yona Jeremy Bob. He's a, a senior reporter for the Jerusalem Post. He's covered legal affairs, judiciary affairs for many years, and also doing military affairs now. He's got to go and sit on on, uh, on a briefing with uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, in just a little bit. We're going to let him go, but I'm going to tell you next week, uh, Thursday, 4 p.m., be here with another ICEJ weekly webinar. We will probably be covering the same topic with another good guest uh, coming at it from another angle. So just join and make sure to join us then. And also next Wednesday, our global prayer gathering, join Christian leaders from around the world uh, to pray for Israel, the region, and your country. Uh, and we thank you uh, joining us today on the ICJ weekly webinar, Shalom from Jerusalem.